Among evangelicals, John Wesley should need no introduction. Preacher, missionary, theologian, and hymn writer, Wesley was one of those voices that shook the enlightened 18th century awake. His call for authentic faith and authentic holiness was heard on both sides of the Atlantic. Wesley's radical methods and polemical fervor met with enthusiasm and antagonism, and his reputation as a polarizing figure is as much an enduring part of his legacy as the Wesleyan denominations and hymns. Yet Biola University's Fred Sanders thinks evangelicals need to be introduced to John Wesley again. Moving beyond the perception of Wesley as founder of Methodism and nemesis of Calvinism, Sanders' new book, Wesley on the Christian Life, presents John Wesley as a wise and sound spiritual guide for evangelicals of all stripes. Hello all, I'm David Grubbs, and I'll be your host today on Christian Humanist Profiles. My guest for this episode is Dr. Fred Sanders, an associate professor at Biola University's Tory Honors Institute and author of Wesley on the Christian Life, The Heart Renewed in Love. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sanders. Thanks for having me, David. I trust things are well in sunny California. Yeah, it's a great great day, great weather as usual. Mm. Windy here in Kansas. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's dive right into it. Um your book is part of a series. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a series called Theologians on the Christian Life from Crossway. The uh, editors, the series editors are Steve Nichols and Justin Taylor. And um, it's sort of a spirituality series in a way, though what we what we now call spiritualities, I'm kind of an old fuddy-duddy and think that used to be the doctrine of the Christian life in classical systematic theology. <laughs> and apparently Steve and uh, Justin are similar fuddy-duddies and thought they would launch this kind of a series. So it really brings to things we would think of now as spirituality, uh, this kind of a classical doctrinal uh, lens. Uh, and then it works through major theologians uh, from the history of Christian thought. Who is it treated so far? Let's see. I think um, Warfield was the first out, and there's been Bonhoeffer and Schaefer. Um, so I... I think I'm fourth in the release in the series of releases. Um, those have been by um, Warfield was by Fred Zaspel and uh, Schaefer was by William Edgar and uh, Bonhoeffer was by uh, um, Steve Nichols. Uh, soon we'll see Calvin on the Christian Life by Mike Horton and John Owen on the Christian Life by Matthew Barrett and Michael Haken. Um, so that'll be nice. Um, I, I don't know if there's a master plan behind the sequence of releases. I, I suspect it's a matter of when manuscripts could be delivered. Mm. Any chance of getting a Bernard of Clairvaux on the Christian life or something like that? That's a good question. I don't know how wide this is going to go. Um, <laughs> I didn't see anyone like that on the initial list that I saw way back when. It is interesting uh, that if you think about Steve and Justin and Crossway and the kind of market that uh, Crossway is great at reaching... Um, Wesley's a little bit of an outlier, so if you were expecting kind of your standard Calvinist authors, um, here comes Wesley instead. Well, speaking of that, um, why do we need to be introduced to Wesley? Well, um, I, I suppose some, some of us don't need to be introduced to Wesley. I spent time in, you know, Wesley-influenced, uh, circles where his name is still on every lip, mm. um, but... What I've noticed is that in evangelicalism at large, um, he's been sort of pigeonholed and um, seems to be seems to have become someone else's property. Uh, and so, 
you, you don't hear them as much in just broader evangelical circles, you know, in multiple denominational settings, with the exception of the Charles Wesley hymns. Those have successfully penetrated just nearly every level of church life. I mean, West, Charles Wesley hymns are in Roman Catholic hymnals, for pity's sake, <laughs> and, and certainly in Reformed hymnals. Right. Well, given given the references that you make to Piper and Packer and Spurgeon, John Owen, um, it seems like you've got at least uh, one audience that you'd like to introduce Wesley to. Um, I've heard you in the past uh, speak of yourself as a Wesleyan who likes Calvin. Um, so would it be fair to say that this book is trying to work the other direction, maybe? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I'm certainly a... Uh... Broadly, a Wesleyan who has learned so much from John Calvin, can't think of any better way to teach really how to do theology than to work students through the institutes of, of the Christian religion. Um, yeah, and it, it's maybe a little bit lonely out there, so it would be fun to meet some uh, Calvinists who like Wesley, uh, because he has a distinctive message, and it's not just the he doesn't like the five points kind of message. There's a particular profile to Wesley's teaching on the Christian life. Um, that I think would resonate with a lot of uh, self-consciously reformed people these days. Okay. So, yeah, so I, do, I spend the, uh, quite a bit of time in the opening gambit of the book quoting uh, great, famous, well-known Calvinists who no one suspects uh, you know, are secretly defecting from Calvinist purity. Um, you, you know, people like Spurgeon and, and um, um, Hodge and people like that saying... Uh, yeah, Wesley's great, and everyone ought to know his work. Yeah. Well, which Wesley are we meeting, then? Oh, yeah, John. If that's what you mean. John, not Charles. Right, right. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I considered... Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. There are lots of Wesleys out there. Um, the family was large and active, and um, uh, his dad was a, a clergyman, and his mom, Susanna, was kind of a homeschooling uh, super mom genius who... Uh, wrote amazingly intellectual letters to her sons at Oxford and um, argued with them about theological points and often won the arguments. Uh, whether her sons knew it or not, she had the better end of it, and they eventually came to agree with her. It looked out that way. John and Charles are kind of the um, the hit singles of the Wesley family album. Um, it it, it kind of seems like that parsonage at Epworth had a thing going on in it, which everyone should have known about, but because of the work of John and Charles, we do know about it. And once you look in, you can say, wow, that was quite a little family style going on there. Cool. Um, will, will Methodists recognize the, the, the Wesley in your book? Well, yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, I, you know, I'm a systematic theologian. I'm, I'm not even a historian, much less a, a professional historian of the 18th century or John Wesley. And those people do exist, and I know them, and uh, sent them copies of my book, and hope things go well there. But, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm kind of doing the thing that everyone does when they are a generalist. You know, you put together the best you can, you have high standards, try to be responsible, um, but then you're at the mercy of the specialists. And um, you hope that they, you hope you do well, and you don't tell any absolute lies, of course, or distort things too badly. Um, and you also hope that they've got the sense to see what you're doing, that um, uh, generalists can take a message places that specialists can't take it. Um, I, anytime I'm working outside my own core field, I the standard I try to set for myself is find out who the, the absolute best scholars are in that field, 
and just read up until you can understand everything they're saying. Right? I, it would be too high a standard to say, I want to perform at the level of a, a Richard Heitzenrutter or a Ken Collins or someone like that. Um, but it is a reasonable standard to say, I can read enough primary and secondary text um, that I can comprehend everything being said in that conversation. Mm. Yeah. Well, switching to uh, the discussion uh, that, that you have of what uh, the the Wesley the Wesley we need to see um, in your second and your third chapter you focus on matters of the heart um, Wesley's own chapter uh, his own heart especially in chapter two and then uh, chapter three on those of his listeners so how does conversion or regeneration uh, how do those fit with the notion of heart religion and mm-hmm. Wesley's life and preaching. Yeah, well, so there's the the biographical ramp for his ministry, which is that he's a, he's an ordained minister. He's done foreign missions. Uh, he's done all kinds of stuff as a Christian, uh, a clergyman. And then in 1738, he experiences what he considers at that time his his conversion. You know, he hears he hears someone reading from Luther's introduction to one of the letters of Paul. And uh, f- for the first time, understands faith, understands justification by faith, and the personal application uh, of the grace of God to his life. And that's where he says famously, my heart was strangely warmed, um, and I knew that I, even I, uh, was saved. Um, so that's kind of amazing. And, and of course, his family was scandalized, and lots of people were surprised to find out that their pastor hadn't been saved the day before yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so that you know that was there's a lot of details there. Whether should we call that his conversion um, or what do we say about what happened to him back in 1725? It's hard to parse that exactly right. Um, and again, his mom certainly didn't think he got saved for the first time that day, but she thought that he came to a better understanding of what had been true of himself. At any rate, he had a radical testimony about what happened in, on uh, May 24, 1738, and then he goes out to minister to an England which was at the national level, living out the same thing he had lived out at the biographical level. Mm. It's the kind of Church of England thing where you're saved by being British. Um, <laughs> and, and it's very rude to point out to anybody that they might, in fact, not be born again. Um, so his bio, you know, God had prepared him so that his biography perfectly mapped onto what the nation itself needed to hear at that moment. And that's kind of the spark behind the revival that uh, he and George Whitfield and the ministers associated with them were able to kick off through their preaching. And one of the things that I know that is associated with the the idea of heart religion and the Great Awakening is this kind of emotional fervor. Um, Does Wesley make the kinds of distinctions between, you know, I guess carnal emotional fervor or, or mere emotion and the kinds of a religious affections, if I can use Edward's term. Yeah, um, he does. He doesn't quite make them where we would. So um, he, he'll talk in good 18th century language about the um, stirring up of the animal spirits, you know, and how that's not that shouldn't be confused with the spiritual work of grace. But that's just general excitability. Mm. And we should expect animals like ourselves to be generally excitable and when when things go the right way for us. Um, so he does make that kind of distinction, and it, it does map very well onto Edwards's work. Um, you know, Wesley uh, supported and, and republished um, 
not annotated, but um, expurgated versions of Edwards on the religious affections. So, you know, they're contemporaries, and if you've already got a handle on what Edwards means by heart religion, then you're pretty close to what Wesley and Whitfield are pushing. It's the same international movement. Mm. Um, Where we might make a distinction with something like, you know, it's one thing to be happy, but it's another thing to have joy. Happiness is shallow, but joy is deep, or happiness can be merely carnal. Lots of people can be happy, but joy is spiritual. Um, Wesley wouldn't cut it that way. Happy was absolutely a good word for him, and he would say remarkable things like the Son of God came so you could be happy. Um, And he, like Edwards, would say, you can measure your spiritual maturity by how, um, how deeply affected you are uh, how, how stirred up your heart is by the things of God. Do you have the list of spiritual affections that are constantly, repeatedly testified to in Scripture? Hmm. So, I try to report that accurately the way Wesley would say it, while also knowing that we are a couple centuries downstream from that, and especially in the American evangelical context, um, depending on your particular, you know, church tradition that you enter that context from. Um, I mean, some of us have grown up in happy, clappy, cheerleadery, zero content kind of um, expressions of the faith, where it's it's not it doesn't tell like good news to say the more excited your heart is, the more spiritually mature you are. Uh, it, you know, if that makes sense, sort of. Yeah. In one yeah. sense, we're all Wesleyans now, so how is this interesting? I thought we were trying to get over a merely emotional Christianity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah but- I, you know, I teach undergrads, so I'm um, trying to teach them Wesley when they may be just growing into, as, as um, young adults, um, you know, at the college level, they may just now be growing into kind of a structured, content-carrying expression of the Christian faith and experiencing... Oh, you know, worship as a pep rally, the idea that worship hasn't happened here unless I've crossed a certain emotional threshold mm-hmm. with, with all the kind of, you know, weird double legalism that that brings with it. Yeah. So so basically that Wesley's sort of preaching to people who who are in the middle of that sort of content mastery stage who need to come through on the other side. Not the people who haven't reached that stage yet, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, so there's something to that. And then also, or maybe we're coming at it from the other angle. And ah. um, I mean, we do need to, I think we we do need to sort of realign with this message of heart religion. Um, anyone who's ever in any way identified as evangelical has got to be in touch with the um, revival-based heart religion of the 18th century. I mean, mm-hmm. evangelicalism isn't just Protestantism. It's Protestantism through the filter of those awakenings. Yeah. Though uh, there's another filter um, at work, it's, it seemed to me, um, chapter four was was helpful in kind of pointing pointing that uh, Wesley's theology, I guess, as as filtered through First John, um, that was uh, that was helpful to me in mm. in framing uh, my understanding of Wesley. So, if you could camp out a bit on that, what's what's First John got to do with it? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I was, uh, you know, I'm sorry, my mind's kind of lingering back on the question of emotion. I, um, if I, before I turn to First John, let me say something that crossed my mind. Sure. Um, I assumed that I was going to be writing a book about someone who was the opposite of my Myers-Briggs type, 
You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a thinker, not a feeler, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a scholar. Wesley's a man of action whose work transforms the world. And so all of that's true. He's a very different person than me. I feel like I could take a long car trip with Charles Wesley and we'd get along pretty well. But John is just another sort of person. But I assumed that he was going to be Mr. Heart, Mr. Emotion, process things and responded to them by feeling. It's actually not the case. He's actually quite the rationalist. There's a line where his uh, father is kind of poking fun at him early on, who says, they called him Jackie in the house, says, I don't think Jackie would use the toilet if he weren't rationally persuaded that it was the right thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the interesting thing about the emotions in Wesley's teaching um, is that he taught the renewal of the heart and the the train of affections that should be um, devoted to Jesus. He taught that because he became rationally convinced that that was the truth. Like he, he thought hard enough about it to decide that the emotions estim, um, deserved that high estimation. So it's kind of interesting. I wasn't I wasn't coming at it from quite as opposite the end of things as I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So um, first, John, this this may be the most original thing in the book. It's kind of in the middle of the book, chapter four. Um, John Wesley had a favorite book of the Bible. It was First John, and it wasn't just sort of picked at random. He was convinced that it was the final book of the Bible, kind of the final apostolic witness, um, chronologically even, and that it built on and, and perfected and presupposed and gave a final statement to all that had gone before. Hmm. So, you know, you can kind of picture that with the New Testament. The whole Bible is the Word of God, but since the New Testament is, comes last in a process of progressive revelation, it has a kind of hermeneutical priority. Um, You know, we shouldn't use it to trump or discard the Old Testament. There are lots of ways to do that wrong. But if progressive revelation is happening, then the later revelations um, have a kind of high ground over the earlier revelations. Yeah. So Wesley put 1 John in that category, and um, he just thought of it as taking everything Paul had taught and um, without suppressing or denying or changing any of it, just raising it to a higher level of teaching. It helped me to understand that about John Wesley. I mean, for one thing, it's just an odd thing to figure out what someone's favorite book of the Bible is. You know, mine's Ephesians, and I think that shows up in anything I do theology about in lots of ways. But to recognize that Wesley's isn't even another letter of Paul. I mean, that kind of fried me for a while, right? I mean, I'm just <laughs> Paul is Paul is home base for me. It's my default. It's you know, I, I launch always from Paul, yeah. and then I try to do a good job saying, okay, this is Matthew. Don't don't superimpose Paul's theology over it. Try to understand what the Spirit is saying through Matthew um, or John, you know. And so there are little adjustments you make, like Paul talks about adoption, being made into sons, and John talks about being born of God. Well, it's easy to say those are both theologies of how we get to be God's children. Um, but it's also important to mark those differences and say John says it this way, Paul says it that way. The interesting thing about being, as I call him, John Wesley, being the theologian of First John, the one who takes that as his baseline, is you have another set of concerns when you're doing First John. You have, um, well, what emerges from a really straightforward reading of First John. You have an emphasis on um, being perfected, the love of God being perfected in you. Mm-hmm. You have an idea of nested maturity, you know, so there in chapter two, the, the um, little children and the young men and the fathers um, are all to be commended for being at the place where God wants them to be, but they're not each other. They're these sort of apparently three levels. 
um, there's a probably the main emphasis in First John is that God is light, and that there's no darkness in Him at all. And while this is good news, it also poses problems for how people like us could have fellowship with the Father and with His Son and with the apostles. If there is darkness in us, and if we don't walk in the light, what fellowship could we have? Well, First John doesn't lay out an argument about that the way Paul does, but he does use key terminology like propitiation, and we have an advocate with the Father, and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. Um, so anyway, Wesley takes all of that and thinks a certain set of thoughts about having this fellowship with God who is pure light. And a lot of people have done that. What's amazing about Wesley is that he's so radically and consistently Protestant as he thinks through it, hmm. which effectively means that he really brings Paul's theology into dialogue with John's in a constructive way, not just as it sits there in the Bible in its own dialogue, but as Wesley makes use of it in his own formulations. So you've been working with First John yourself lately, or so the Scriptorium blog would have me believe. Um, yeah. Has Wesley been assisting you in that? He has been. So just in, in terms of um, the order of operations in my own life, I had to write that chapter, you know, last year. And, um, I, you know, I'd read First John and studied it quite a bit and studied it uh, through it with Wesley's notes from his explanatory notes on the New Testament and from his sermons and the things I pulled together there in chapter four. Um, but then, in addition to teaching at Biola, I teach at a Bible institute um, in downtown L.A., um, the L.A. Bible Training School, and uh, there I get to teach. Um, since it's at sort of a lower academic level, it's kind of congregational-level teaching with homework. Um, I get to teach all kinds of stuff that I don't get to teach even at Biola. Um, so I'm doing First John for Second and Third John this term, and so studying through it in much greater depth and figuring out what I would say for myself as a teacher. Um, you know, I'm glad I haven't reversed my opinion at all on it, and I think I am following some guidelines from things Wesley pointed out to me in there. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm glad I haven't changed my mind at all. I did read one commentary that decided those three groups in Chapter 2 are really two groups, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, was, which is awkward. Although, you know, I look at Chapter 4 in the Wesley book, and what I'm really doing there is not teaching First John in my own voice, but reporting and interacting with what John Wesley teaches about it. Mm. And he certainly takes it to be two groups. You know, the other argument there is John calls everybody little children. If you look at the end of the letter, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's talking to everybody there. Mm -hmm. And so what he says there is in his three, in his uh, two different triads is, all of you little children, I, I've written to you for this reason. Um, but among the little children, there's two groups. There are the young men and the fathers. Yeah, it's an interesting argument. Um, it's probably the minority view, and I'll probably settle back into the three groups view. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Wesley's a powerful expositor of First John, and to my mind, I mean, I'm never going to leave Ephesians. I, I guess this is where Wesley and I just disagree. I think Ephesians is the sort of capstone of progressive revelation that puts it all together from the highest vantage point. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's really been fruitful for me to to try to think inside Wesley's commitment to First John, summing everything up. Um, it was hard to get any higher than Ephesians, you know. Um, uh, every blessing in the spiritual places and in, in the heavenly places in Christ. Um, Paul there is really looking from a a high vantage point at all of salvation history. But you go to First John, and I. I this is the wrong way to put it, but it feels in some ways more spiritual than Ephesians. It could be that it's not argumentative, um, 
it could be the emphasis on love. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it could be the purity of the statement that God is light, which is just, you know, this breathtaking statement that's stated nowhere else in Scripture. But as soon as you read it, you think, yeah, that really sums it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, maybe some, well, to me, when I read the two, it sometimes sounds as if Paul is speaking about this elevated spiritual place. And sometimes John sounds as if he's speaking from it. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even I mean, even Otter. Um, if you go deep inside what Wesley has to say here, he teaches about this high uh, experience that's possible for us of the grace of God in this life. You know, before we die, and he's pretty convinced that the Apostle John um, reached that state of having his heart perfected in love and wrote from it. Hmm. Whereas Paul, for most of his life, um, had not, did not. You know, he was writing about it, he understood it, he was never doctrinally wrong, but experientially, he wrote from a real struggle. Um, If I, that's John Wesley's view, Um, you know, bluntly, that John wrote from a state of Christian perfection, and Paul did not. It doesn't do anything to downgrade Paul's doctrinal value, or the the absolute truth of everything he says, and, you know, as his works are the inspired word of God. Um, if I were to try to sort of splice that into my own view, I would probably angle for Ephesians having been written after Paul had reached his breakthrough moment. <laughs> I don't know if John Wesley would agree with me on that or not. But, you know, Ephesians is a letter of this second captivity, uh, the second imprisonment. And so it's, it's later in Paul's life. Okay. Well, moving, uh, moving to this next point, um, your uh, your chapter on impute the imputed righteousness of Christ as part yeah. of uh, part of the doctrine of justic- justification um, that Wesley switched his his view on that it was it was really dramatic it was really interesting as a story and it was dramatic theologically too that was uh, I really enjoyed that part of the book um, what made Wesley hesitate about the imputed righteousness and what made him change his mind. Yeah. Well, th- I'm glad you liked it. That's chapter five, the Lord, our righteousness in some ways, the most boring chapter in the book. Oh, I, don't, <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> well, I, I, good. And if you're my audience, I nailed it. Um, <laughs> um, so it's, it's a little bit, it's kind of detailed. The doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ, or you could say the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. Um, not just his passive obedience, whereby he suffered the punishment for our sins, but the active obedience of his perfect life, um, which is made over to us in salvation. So it's kind of a classic Protestant doctrine. Um, It's not directly stated in those terms in Scripture, but it's not hard to sort of draw out the inferences and formulate the doctrine. Um, There is a rumor going, I think this chapter will be news to a lot of people, because there's a persistent rumor that Wesley denied the um, uh, imputation of the righteousness of Christ, Um, and for a time he did. But what made it into his standard sermons, which he published and caused to be propagated as a norm for, um, a guideline for uh, Methodist preaching, is an affirmation of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Hmm. What caused him to change his mind was um, one of his... uh, I believe, younger contemporaries, um, uh, James Hervey, not anyone we've heard much of for most of us. 
his writings were incredibly popular at the time, but their style is just pretty much unbearable to our ears. I mean, very purple, um, descriptive kind of prose. Uh, I slogged through all the works of James Hervey, and a lot of good insight in there, but boy, he, he really looks around and tells you about the scenery. <laughs> um, and he, you know, he couldn't travel. He was sick a lot. He was a, a parish minister, and so he kind of stayed put and tried to carry out an, a ministry through writing, whereas Wesley was a, you know, vigorous and hearty and went everywhere and talked to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hervey wrote this book called Theron and Aspasio, um, and it's a dialogue in which uh, kind of a liberal Christian, sort of a barely Christian, um, gets the real pure gospel from uh, a more a mature Christian who who's really in on the truth, and especially comes. To, there's a defense of lots of different doctrines in there, but he really comes to accept the that our righteousness has to be the imputed righteousness of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sent this to Wesley, and Wesley said, "Yeah, that's that's pretty good, Hervey. Hervey was one of the um, Oxford Holy Club members, um, a Calvinistic Methodist, if you can believe that term." There were a bunch of these Calvinistic Methodists, and Hervey's one of them. So Wesley said, yeah, that's pretty good. Thanks, James. I like it. And then James Hervey wrote back and said, no, tell me what you really think. And so Wesley wrote back and said, well, actually, I don't like it. I mean, there's, lots of, there's lots of good stuff in there. But, you know, when you insist on the imputed active obedience of the life of Christ as opposed to or distinct from his death, I don't like that. Scripture never divides the two, not even analytically. They, they always go together. I don't know why you'd even talk about one without the other. And Hervey wrote back and said, here's why I'd talk about one without the other. You know, you can analytically take them apart and see the distinct contributions of the two. So they went back and forth a little bit, and then their followers got a hold of this and really played up the disagreement, and it turned into a really ugly fight. I don't think Hervey did anything. Wesley did a few things kind of ugly there. I don't think Hervey did, but one of his younger admirers behaved really abominably towards Wesley and his reputation. Uh, So lots of fighting and ill will on both sides. But by Sermon 20, The Lord Our Righteousness, Sermon 20 in the Standard Sermons of Wesley, um, you know, I quoted at great length here because it's just there in cold print that Wesley affirms the doctrine of of the imputation of Christ's righteousness for our salvation. The reason he held back on it at first is, in his own experience of the people that he was preaching to, he saw the righteousness of Christ repeatedly appealed to as a cover for lawlessness. Mm. And so you can imagine that's a pretty soft target for John Wesley to go after. (laughs) Um, Two things that Wesley was always opposed to, and whenever I was trying to get my bearings and figure out what would Wesley say about X, Y, or Z, I would just call to mind he hated formalism and he hated antinomianism. So he's an evangelical Protestant Christian, but he's got these two main enemies— the kind of formalism that says, if I just do the outward acts of righteousness, I'm righteous. He said, no, it's got to be about the heart. You know, all the outside stuff doesn't matter. It's the kind of going to church doesn't make you a Christian argument. And, you know, he's an Anglican, so he loves a full-blown, elaborate Anglican liturgy. He just is constantly emphasizing salvation is not in it. Salvation mm-hmm. is the work of grace. All that beautiful outward stuff that comes from it has to come from it. You can't invest in the externals themselves. The other thing he really hated was antinomianism. The idea that the gospel somehow frees us from the demands of God's law. You know, it saves us without reference to the law, but it doesn't free us from God's moral authority to command and to receive obedience. And so if you, you can still hear these days a bad, a, a perverted application of the doctrine of 
salvation by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's something like, yeah, I did some bad things, but when God looks at me, he only sees Jesus because I'm righteous with this other guy's righteousness, therefore I go on sinning. Well, you know, just let any apostle get a hold of that. Paul's ready to argue you out of it, as he does in Romans. Um, John's ready to take you to task on it. And John Wesley loved making fun of it. So he would you know, kind of get out there in the weeds with it and say, oh, so when I saw you in a whorehouse, I guess you were chased with the chastity of Christ. And when you were drunk, I suppose you were sober with the sobriety of Christ. But don't you think the Lord's going to want some of your own sobriety somewhere in there? You know, not to justify you, but um, you really, the imputed righteousness of Christ is not there for you to hide your antinomianism behind. So, he, you know, he eventually said, I think the two rules he laid down in this sort of peacemaking sermon, the Lord our righteousness, which in its own right is a great teaching of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And as a conciliatory document, he says, just two things, if you're going to preach this doctrine, don't preach it all the time or preach it in isolation from the other doctrines or yell at me if I refuse to say it every two minutes. Right? Like it could be. It can be the thing you should preach, but you can't look at other ministers and say they're losers because they don't preach this constantly as a favorite theme. And it really was a favorite theme of Hervey. I mean, it's of all the elements of the gospel that he really resonated with and tried to draw attention to, Hervey was Mr. Imputed Righteousness. Mm. The second rule that Wesley laid down um, was never teach it in such a way that it can become a cover for antinomianism. That's, that's a dysfunction of that doctrine. If he hates antinomianism, um, you use a term to describe him. Is is it one that you coined, nomophilic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to. I think I googled it, and people do use it in some other context. That one might be used in some kind of a chemical context. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so it's kind of a made up word, but it's rightly made up. So other people have made it up, uh, but it hasn't taken. I'm just looking for the law of God, the nomos, and saying there's an attitude or a theological disposition that is aligned with the law of God. Okay. Um, and says that the gospel um, is greater than the law of God, but doesn't trump it or dis trump it or displace it. I guess the opposite would be what nomophobic, um, <laughs> <laughs> which would be a, a, a kind of, again, distorted way of preaching the gospel that constantly pitched it against the law. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, I, I know, I know I've read, chunks of luther that could possibly be characterized as nomophobic if you don't read all of luther yeah i think that's right i mean luther's got um i mean both the impression and the fact that that's not what luther's really up to right um some of the people i learned the most from in researching this book on wesley are lutherans who are wesley scholars hmm. so um gordon rupp uh just almost dominates my own book because i just found him so helpful um there's a kind of a, obviously what Wesley is, is he's a kind of reformed Christian who's anti-Calvinist, mm. right? <laughs> uh, who's who's non-Calvinist, I should say. Um, and yet there are some really close alignments with him and Luther. Uh, it's, you know, it's Luther's voice that he hears when he gets saved. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his 1738 um, um, conversion or whatever we should call that thing. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, Luther, he's got this early, Luther's early sermon, Two Kinds of Righteousness, makes this point that we're saved by an alien righteousness, and then we do, in fact, have our own proper righteousness, um, which is only worked by the Holy Spirit working in us, etc. But there is such a thing. Luther actually has things to say about the proper righteousness that a Christian has. 
mm-hmm. in his on the freedom of the Christian, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, and also in that early sermon, uh, two kinds of righteousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I had to distinguish between um, the Holy Club days before uh, before he hears the voice of Luther and uh-huh. his nomophilia after hearing the voice of Luther. Um, are there distinctions there that would let us label one potentially uh, a legalism and the other not? Hmm. Yeah, so I think the way Wesley would describe what he was doing from 1725 to 1738, um, so in the time that he's a serious Christian, um, but hasn't yet, I, I mean, I want to say hasn't yet become Protestant, Right. I mean, you okay. know how Anglicanism is pretty obviously Protestant, but you can always run into Anglicans who think it's not. And you know, I don't mean just John Henry uh, Cardinal Newman or the Tractarians. <laughs> um, but you know, you just run into a certain kind of Anglican in America and in England who think this is a third way, or it's really like the local Catholic Church or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, that's not how I read the Thirty Nine Articles or the formative years of Anglicanism. I mean, it's not how Wesley read it. So. Um, what was he up to between 1725 and 1738? You know, his college friends nicknamed him Mr. Primitive Christianity because he had this kind of zeal to recover the uh, the burning, you know, um, energy of the early Christian movement. Um, and he was, you know, he was doing hospital visitations and um, all kinds of ascetic practices and um, constant use of the means of grace. But by his own testimony, he just had a messed up theology of faith. If you asked him, are we saved by faith? He would have said, he would have said all kinds of weird things about being saved by faith and works. And he would have done a strange interpretation of work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, He just would have given the wrong answer. He would have absolutely failed a Protestant theological exam. Um, That much seems very clear to me about what he got right in 1738. He changed his doctrine of salvation by faith. Mm. Um, so in that way, I guess by definition, since he wanted holiness, but he wanted it without faith, uh, then by definition, he was being legalistic from 1725 to 1738. Now, you know how conversions are if you're raised in a Christian home. Um, there are also lines of continuity from 1725 to 1738, but if you focus on his sort of Protestantizing of his wild and woolly Anglicanism in 1738, that's what really changed. Mm. That, that doctrine of salvation by faith. Okay. So, so, so a lot of the forms carry over, but the reasons for it, the logic under underlying it, the way he even feels about what he's doing is distinct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So he describes it as, you know, totally revolutionary. Yep. Mm. Well, you brought up perfectionism, the the Christian perfection issue already. Um, yeah. And given given that that's that's one of the polarizing points, um, you waited until chapter eight to bring it up, and by <laughs> by that time we've already heard Wesley sounding an awful lot like John Piper talking about you know heart re- religion, and a lot an awful lot like Luther sound, talking about justification. And imputation and salvation by grace through faith and right use of the law and the means of grace and all those things we get those before we get to Christian perfection. So, how do those prepare us for hearing what he has to say on 
this point that's really controversial. Yeah, it is controversial. And I, I expect uh, Chapter 8 there to be, oh, deeply unsatisfying to pretty much everybody. You know, I was trying to serve John Wesley and my readership by giving the best pitch I could uh, and, you know, reporting what he says, even where I can't affirm it. But but not just writing in that kind of cold, analytic way. Like, I, you know, just take it or leave it. It's what Wesley says. I wanted to really be able to commend as much as I could of the doctrine of Christian perfection as taught by Wesley. Mm. So, yeah, I do, I do set, set things up a long way off, and I'm, I'm angling on chapter 8 from the beginning of page 1. You know, I'm kind of trying to prepare this so that it's plausible and helpful. Um, not that anyone necessarily has to change their position on a doctrine, um, but even just to be able to receive this as anything but craziness, I think, is a, a valuable thing for everyone, regardless of their theology on this point. I mean, I guess what I would commend is Wesley's vision of union with Christ. This might be kind of a Paul way to put it. Um, I can come back to John's way of putting it here in a minute. But Wesley's vision of union with Christ is that um, when you are placed in Christ, you receive all the blessings, uh, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And we have a terrible temptation to go for only some of them, to pick and choose among the blessings of union with Christ. Um, and, and, you know, there are reasons why in our carnality we have those desires. Um, we want to, instead of having a heart-to-heart encounter with God, we want to hide from God out in the externals. And so that's that formalism that Wesley's against. Um, or instead of... Um, needing God's free forgiveness, we want to earn some kind of favor with God. And so that's the, um, that's the legalism, which Wesley's less afraid of than he is of the antinomianism, where we want to uh, say that we have fellowship with God even though we walk in the darkness. So um, I think this is so much the case. We, we so much want to pick and choose among the blessings of union with Christ that if someone says to you today, uh, can you lose your salvation? The clear uh, implication, uh, the right interpretation of what they're asking is, can you fail to go to heaven? Mm-hmm. For Wesley, salvation is a very large word that includes all sorts of things. Now, I understand emphasizing heaven because of all the blessings of union with Christ, heaven's the one that goes on forever, right? <laughs> like by, by definition, that's like being there. <laughs> and so um, you, you wouldn't want to... Um, you know, I don't hold any truck with people who say, like, well, what about the blessings in this life? Well, great. I want all the blessings in this life. Um, but I also know that, like, heaven lasts a lot longer than this life. So I understand why it gets kind of priority. But it tends to get a kind of a reductive priority, which is, you know, if someone, in, if a kid in your youth group, especially your Methodist youth group, says, can I lose my salvation? They're thinking a very unwesleyan thought. They're thinking, can I fail to go to heaven even though I got... Um, born again back here at this event. Mm. Wesley's trying to take that apart. Um, and if, you know, if you were to be Socratic about it and someone were to ask you, can you use your salvation? I'd want to say something like, oh, you mean um, open fellowship with God in prayer? Are you worried about losing that? No, I'm not worried about losing that. Oh, so you mean like walking as he walked? You know, that's one, one way of talking about salvation. Is that what you're worried about losing? No, I'm not worried about losing that either. Right? And you can kind of work through the list of all the things that are part of salvation and that are benefits of union with Christ um, that we're not, in fact, worried about losing. Mm-hmm. It's all just about going to heaven. And so there's something unreal about that approach. 
So um, Wesley is looking at perfection as one of the many benefits of union with Christ. It's it's part of the package, and I think that's the the real direction he's coming at them this from. Now after that, and then there's one other major commitment for Wesley that leads him to teach the doctrine of Christian perfection, um, and that is that it's a Bible word. You know, perfect is just it's a word in Scripture. Teleos. It's a whole word group that gets used in lots of different ways. Um, English translations tend to do various things with it, like mature, um, things like that, complete. But um, Wesley was pretty dogged, almost fundamentalistic on this, and just put his foot down and said, it is a Bible word, and you can't, you can't blow a whistle and criticize me for using a Bible word. So what this committed him to then was kind of an, um, an irritating or an awkward sort of rhetorical style. I don't know if it was awkward to him or if he loved it. It's always felt awkward to me as a reader, where you put out a doctrine and then immediately start qualifying it. <laughs> so, I teach Christian perfection. Oh, okay, you mean like absolute perfection? No, not absolute perfection. Oh, you mean sinless perfection? Well, no, not sinless perfection unless you mean it this way. Um, well, then is it is it perfect perfection? Like you can never lose it? No, no, you could lose it. Well, can some people, can you be more perfect, or is everyone the same perfect? Say, oh, no, there are degrees of perfection. Well, all of a sudden, you're dealing with this idea of perfection, which is nothing like anything you've ever attached to the word perfection. Um, but Wesley was committed to that, I think, because it's a Bible word, and it goes with a, a spiritual insight into the unity of all the blessings that we have in Christ. So he always did that. He taught Christian perfection and immediately began qualifying it. Hmm. So was he so, using, like, the the English word, but thinking in Greek? Yeah. Well, I mean, it could be. Um, if you're thinking in Greek consistently, teleosis could have the connotation of reaching the goal, the telos, for which something exists. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, to his mind, there is a goal to full salvation, and we should get there experientially. Um, and to not get there is to leave the experiential side of salvation, or you know what we would call progressive sanctification, um, incomplete, unfinished. Hmm. And so he saw it much more as a whole that should be experienced in this life. And then as he works out the details um, in controversy with various people, you can kind of ask, okay, sure, there is a term or a terminus point, a telos, a goal for um, progressive sanctification, but we get it in heaven. You know, it's 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 on the other side, and it's kind of you can't tell it apart from glorification. Mm -hmm. They just those happen simultaneously. Um, and Wesley would just say, "I I don't see that line in Scripture. I am led to expect greater things. I'm not saying I have a greater Savior than you, but maybe <laughs> like the, the Jesus I'm the Jesus I'm following is." competent to save us to the uttermost, um, and what he meant by that uttermost is to actually bring us to the completion of progressive sanctification. You hint that there are some differences between um, John Wesley and Charles Wesley on this topic. I mean, how different were they? Yeah, now as I understand it, and I haven't read as widely in Charles as I have in John, um, they, they start to disagree on um, sort of who they know who has experienced uh, entire sanctification or the perfection of the heart in love. Um, 
they're both trying to be realistic and try to hold themselves to the evidence. And so they do, while they don't claim entire sanctification for themselves, they do start making lists of who they have heard reported in, in the groups, you know, might have received this blessing. Hmm. Um, and, you know, at some point, sort of late in life, it turns out it's mostly women. And it's, <laughs> and it's mostly really old women. Um, and then at some point it gets to be like, well, and they're mostly on their deathbed. Like they get it right at the end there. Um, and so then that, that too kind of sounds like amazing qualifications to be placed on it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, John and Charles kind of made some different decisions about how they thought this worked out. Um, Charles having to write hymns about everything tended to, uh, use language of, uh, being perfected in love. In fact, I mean, Charles is so good, he sneaks references to this experience of perfection and love into lots of hymns um, that most people don't notice. So every now and then we'll be singing a Wesley hymn somewhere that's, you know, not working from a Wesleyan theology. And I'll think, check it out. Charles got a little reference there into uh, being perfected in love. And he put it in in a way that's not divisive, that everyone can kind of sing it and affirm it. Um, But if you know where it's coming from, it's kind of an extra level for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people have embraced uh, embraced those hymns pretty widely, and the the expression of the doctrine in them is is it's it's rich and it's vivid, and a lot of times you can you 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 can sing it, and it takes you to uh, it kind of takes you to a Bible verse place without necessarily taking you to a the distinctive theology of my denomination place. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the great things about those hymn fights of the 18th century. You know, um, Rock of Ages was actually written uh, by Augustus Toplady as an anti-Methodist hymn. Really? Yeah, yeah. He he got so ticked off at the Methodists. I mean, he really hated Arminianism just terribly. He, you know, he thought it was a total betrayal of the gospel, not just another version of evangelicalism. Um, and so he wrote this hymn. If you especially look at the lines in Rock of Ages, um, could my zeal, no, respite, no, could my tears forever flow, Um, all for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. Mm. What he's really thinking of there is, those Methodists, man, they're so excited about being zealous for God and crying so much, they think that's atoning for their sins. But that is not how it works, you know? Only God can save us. So he writes that to kind of get a dig in at him and remind him, you know, all that stuff's not going to save you. And the Wesleyans hear it, the Methodists hear it and say, that is awesome. We love that hymn. So they immediately start using it. <laughs> <laughs> and and similar things happen. You know, Charles kind of gets cranky and writes these sort of uh, digs at Calvinist theology. And um, uh, some of them, he states them in a, in a Bible accountable way. And, um, you know, the Reformed hear them and say, this is great. We'll start singing this. This is one of your good hymns. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. You can You can kind of have these arguments, but as long as you have them on scriptural terms, you end up producing material that's ecumenically useful. See, that's a fantastic segue, because <laughs> <laughs> um, the next thing I want to talk about is your chapter nine entitled Catholic Spirit. Um, I, not not going to lie, I, I, I never really thought of Wesley as a let's cross the aisle kind of guy hmm. um, in... He 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 he's always kind of struck me as as a very kind of pugnacious figure, mm. and this this chapter 
was um well the tone of the chapter was ironic um that's and i mean that was partially your tone but a lot of it is yeah it's it's coming out of wesley and i was um really surprised and pleased uh to to see a lot of uh the way he he dealt with christians of of different stripes or protestants of different stripes Mm -hmm. so how can we see him as a model of living the truth of the holy catholic church in that that sense of of ecumenical union around truth yeah, well, I mean, I hope I quoted enough of him that it was clear it wasn't just me being nice, but it was actually Wesley with a, a strong commitment to yeah. um, bridge building. Yeah, um, I mean, he had he had a couple of rules. Uh, I'm actually flipping through the book here trying to find it, and I, I can't quite. But um, he had a couple of rules that, to apply that I think we could immediately apply, like all of us could in our settings right away. Um, and that is... He thought it was good to remind the people that you're ministering to and among um, that God was doing things in other groups. We would say in other tribes these days. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that's the kind of thing where, let's say you're having a great time being a non-Calvinist and you're really looking for a revival and movement in, in the groups that you're responsible for and to. And then you hear something great happening among the Reformed and you think, well, whatever. <laughs> you know what Wesley would say? No, that's a problem. You should uh, you should uh, retweet that. You know, you really should. Well, I don't think he would have said it in the 18th century. You should take the time to draw the attention of your people to that. Um, you know, just because there are what seem to you to be doctrinal deviations, you should have the courage of your convictions. And this is not a this is not a laissez-faire kind of a liberalism or what was his 18th century language? This is not speculative latitudinarianism. It doesn't mean, well, who knows who's right anyway? Let's just celebrate everything. <laughs> this is, no, I'm pretty sure I'm right. Otherwise, I'd change my opinions. Um, but those people over there with whom I do uh, have differences on certain things, I'm nevertheless going to celebrate and point out that God is doing a thing among them. So, you know, those opportunities come up all the time. When I hear that... Um, an Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, priest on the radio is having sort of a radio evangelism ministry that's making real headway in the Islamic world. My first thought and my main thought ought to be good, Mm. right? It shouldn't be, oh man, Eastern Orthodoxy is messed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, I am of the conviction that Eastern Orthodoxy is messed up in various ways, Um, but it ought to take me a while to get to that. Right? I shouldn't have that kind of mindset that says, that doesn't count as gospel work. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, one of the things that you bring up is, was it, was it his, the, his Christian library? Is that what he called it? Yeah, Christian library. His Christian library, where Wesley is reprinting all sorts of Christian works from uh, kind of across the board in Protestantism that he's found helpful and often from authors that disagree with him on some pretty substantial things. Um, like Edwards, you mentioned that earlier that he, he printed religious affections. Um, so what, what kinds of people was he directing even his own followers towards? Yeah, the Christian library is an amazing set of books. Um, and he actually started into it. Of course he had his own wide reading from his Oxford education and from just being a, um, a real, 
book bug in that way. Um, but he wrote to a dissenting minister um, whose name is totally escaping me right now, um, who wrote The Rise and Progress of Religion and the Soul. Um, ah, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, so he, you know, he sort of collected book lists uh, from people who weren't in his tribe and just started publishing this massive project. Um, he, was, he really had his eye on, of course, English language stuff um, that taught heart religion and that really uh, pushed what he would call practical divinity. Now, as he's doing that, he's sort of drawing on the Puritan heritage, which is part of his family line. You know, his parents are both Anglican, Church of England people, but oddly, both of his parents had separately converted to Anglicanism as adults or as young adults. And their parents, so Wesley's grandparents on both sides, were Puritans, like um, did time in jail for having small group meetings or refusing to use the Book of Common Prayer, Puritans, you know, non-Anglicans. Wow. So he's got this Puritan thing, and, you know, largely the Puritan tradition um, was uh, reformed in, in the Church of England, in and out of the Church of England, because you got different kinds of Puritans, right? you got doctrinal Puritans who are inside the Church of England, and then those who are expelled from the Church of England as well. Mm. Well, all of those are just feeding into this, and Wesley's just kind of gladly gathering all of it and pumping it right into 40 volumes of the Christian Library that he wants all of his people to read and have available. Though he was also doing, uh, you said that he was, uh, the Jonathan Edwards' religious affections that he printed, you said that it was that it was expurgated. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, I think it might be kind of difficult to convince an Edwards fan that expurgating the, the Calvinism out of religious affections is really kind of a friendly thing to do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, by profession, I'm an English professor, so it, it seems, I, I, it's, it's hard for me not to see this as kind of an academic malpractice thing, like... <laughs> And teaching Dante with the Catholic bits out because it will offend my my Protestant students or something. Right, right. I mean, is there a different light that I can see this in? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I think you're certainly onto something that that's that's um, a, some kind of a bibliographic sin to um, <laughs> uh, to do line item vetoes on doctrinal. Uh, differences. Yeah, and especially, you know, the idea of teaching Dante without the Catholicism is, um, like, I want to say that would be a short book, but I don't even know which lines you'd cut, because it's all, you know, it's a holistic thought project. You can't just separate some bits of it. Mm -hmm. And Edwards uh, was pretty serious about his Calvinism. You know, he had really, he had thought that through. It wasn't just some some random opinions that happened to congeal in his mind. Um, So the idea of doing a line item veto on the reformed bits in anything that Edwards wrote, um, that's that's kind of hard to picture, and I haven't done a close line by line reading. Though there are books that have done that. You know, there's a good book that from Scarecrow Press that has studied the exactly what Wesley expurgated. Um, so I mean, so here's here's a positive spin on it. He is putting these books in the hands of people as part of a pastoral task of leading them into truth, and he has found certain aspects of these teachings. Um, to be unhelpful, to be dangerous. And so, as part of his pastoral responsibility, not as an educator, but as a pastor, as he's propagating spiritual writings, he eliminates those parts that he considers dangerous or counterproductive. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> That's probably about the best I can do on that. I mean, if you want to, if you want to be even more horrified, uh, you might have noticed in the book that he published a shortened version of Paradise Lost. That that, <laughs> that really hurt. Yeah, that hurts. So um, Wesley's a genius at what he's a genius at. Um, you know, he changes the world with the uh, the the revival that his ministry sparks. Um, but he's not a poetic genius, and so. To think of him making judicious selections from Milton, um, I, is, I, yeah, I, I, I can't. I can't imagine a Wesley's Digest version of Paradise Lost. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so if if you look at him as an educator, then then it seems like well, that's malpractice if he's an educator, unless he's an educator who's got his eye on the lowest rung of educational access, and if he knows that his ministry in the church, and especially in his ministry to, you know, to coal miners and to um, uh, tradesmen all over the place, people who are not reading, but they want to be like Mr. Wesley. If he can put in their hands an easier version of Paradise Lost, then they've read something. And then you have to choose between, is it better to read no Milton or the Wesley's Digest version of Milton? Yeah. Now, you know, you can say it's a false dichotomy, but if those are the terms, then I'm willing to say, yeah, I guess it's better to read some of Milton. If it makes you more <laughs> likely to read all of Milton, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. So there is that. Now, now whether it's an unfriendly thing for him to do, um, to uh, rope out the Calvinist bits of religious affections, um, yeah, I mean, that's a harder question. To his mind... The main thing that Edwards was absolutely right about was this heart religion and the ways of distinguishing spiritually between a true and a false, uh, a true work of, of God and uh, a counterfeit work of God. And so that's what he wanted to put in people's hands. I agree. You know, I'd rather have clean footnotes if you were going to leave parts out to let me know. I mean, I'm in a great books program. We don't even like reading anthologies of any kind, right? We want to. We want to put a book, an object in someone's hand that is the book they're reading. Mm -hmm. We sometimes tell them to tear off the introduction and just start with page one of the original work. Um, and I've got a book, I'm looking at a book here on my shelf right now, um, John Flavel's Method of Grace, which I picked up for two bucks in a used bookstore. glad to have found it, read it, loved it. It was years later when I was um, quoting from it in uh, The Deep Things of God as I was writing that book that... I realized I was dealing with an expurgated book that didn't even note where things had been left out. Oh, Whoever wow. published it had done, had just clipped out any paragraph that suggested limited atonement. And, and Flavel's pretty keen on limited atonement, so that's everywhere in the Method of Grace. It's, it's often the punchline of a whole line of argument that he's going for. Um, and those paragraphs were just gone, so I was, I was shocked. Um, to find that when I went back and found, you know, an older, unedited edition of Flavel. Um, and then I was, you know, scandalized that my copy um, didn't have that. On the other hand, because that was a very distorted Flavel that I'd been reading. On the other hand, because I happened to find a $2 copy of it in a used bookstore somewhere in western Kentucky, um, I read Flavel. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so I knew what was in there. And in my case, I had the scholarly um, chops to go out and find the original. Mm. Yeah. But but the main message of Flavel, what's really changed my thinking about grace and the Trinity and has been a really important element of my own developing theology. I actually read that in that little two dollar paperback. You know, I, I, I got it from the expurgated edition. 
do you think that might have been this uh, uh, might have been might distracted, distracted if the punchline of every sentence had been limited atonement? <laughs> well, that's possible. I, I think, yeah, that's kind of a question about my own uh, development and partisanship. I, I think I, I think I could overlook that. Yeah. <laughs> I, just because I'm, I'm so interested in uh, the grace and the Trinity um, that I think that would loom, you know, stand out to me as the main thing. And then I'd note, oh, well, look where you went with that. Huh. One wouldn't have to do that, would one? Mm. You've already brought up the Trinity, so we'll end where the book does, in the happy land of the Trinity. Um, Trinitarian theology is your bailiwick, and uh, you've already, uh, you wrote uh, the deep things of God on that. And so I was actually kind of surprised that you didn't get to the Trinity until the very end of the book. Um, why, why, why last? I, I would have thought you would have gone there first. Yeah, well, you know, if it were just me, I'd start with the Trinity, but I'm consistently trying here to really serve the author, John Wesley, mm. and he's only got one sermon on the Trinity, and it's not one of his standard sermons. So hmm. um, that was really important to me to, to make... Wesley's main emphasis, the main emphasis of the book. And that means even though I read widely in his other stuff, I really wanted to stick to the 52 standard sermons, the notes upon the New Testament, and the hymns of Charles Wesley that were, you know, uh, published. Because those are the three standards that Wesley pointed to and said, you know, this is what to follow. Um, so, yeah, it's a minor element um, in terms of, you know, page count. But as, as you see in the chapter, and it's also a short chapter, by the way, um, mm -hmm. chapter 10, the final chapter, I didn't give it a lot of pages because um, I didn't want to overly impose my own obsessions on John Wesley. Um, but, you know, having said that, I would be happy to spend the rest of my life writing little essays called The Trinitarian Theology of Fill-in-the-Blank. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a game I play. I read a Christian author and I think, I wonder, you know, Rick Warren's really influential. I wonder if there's a trinitarian theology of rick warren that, that'd be kind of a stunt i'd like to try that um and when you come to john wesley and say could i pull off a little essay on the trinitarian theology of john wesley without forcing it too much then yeah absolutely yes there's plenty of stuff especially if you bring in charles wesley's hymns that he wrote you know over a hundred hymns on the trinity um Oof. yeah <laughs> that's a really rich text charles wesley's hymns on the trinity um and it also says something about the Wesley genius that they didn't write doctrinal treatises on the Trinity. Um, they, they wrote hymns, and mm. they worked it into their uh, idea and experience of salvation as their understanding of what vital religion is. But especially, and this is why I put it at the end, when, when John Wesley goes to the doctrine of the Trinity and explicitly says something about it, you know, not just echoing biblical language and the way that he constantly is doing yeah, John and Charles both had this talent for, they could say two lines and reference four verses of scripture in those two lines, you know, like more, more allusions than there are words on the page sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's really an incredibly dense. Uh, Charles in particular reaches levels of density of allusion in the hymns that are just really, really hard to sort out, um, especially because he's thinking in King James and Book of Common Prayer and Greek um, as he's putting these things together. Um, when, when they do go to, to the Trinity, it's a big thought for them. It's a kind of a capstone or a, an ultimate goal or a final fulfillment or the last thing I'm going to say before I have to stop talking altogether is going to be something about fellowship with the Trinity. 
And, you know, that is built into that theology of First John that John Wesley is developing, that, you know, we our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So if he's really writing about the Christian life and about the fellowship that makes up that life, ultimately it's going to reach its fulfillment in our fellowship with the Father and Son in the Spirit. Hmm. So in in, uh, in Deep Things of God, you, you kind of start off by... I guess challenging the different strands of Christianity to see who can be the most thoroughly Trinitarian. Yeah. So if we have our Trinitarian Olympics, um, does does Wesley medal? I mean, apparently Charles does. Yeah, yeah, definitely Charles does. Um, um, John Wesley, yeah, I would say he's got a place in in that and the. Um, Methodist tradition, or the Wesleyan traditions broadly, in their various denominational expressions, they have not produced the greatest list of systematic theologians. You know, one reason most of my favorite theologians are Calvinist is, you know, the Reformed have just done a much better job of producing, generation after generation, really accomplished theologians. Um, the, the Wesleyan traditions haven't done that, but, you know, they've done some. William Burt Pope is a, a truly great theologian who belongs up there at the top of the list with any set of theologians. They have, The theologians they have produced, unless they go liberal, <laughs> have tended to really um, honor the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, And I do think there's something about the, the Methodist genius that kind of plows into this experiential apprehension of the truth of the triune God. That's kind of where that last chapter gets a tiny bit weird, I think. Um, um, Wesley, with his realistic ministry focus, became convinced that Christian experience was Trinitarian experience, and that you ought to be able to find people who sort of had registered in their spiritual experience a kind of knowledge of the Trinity, um, not only from the text of Scripture, but also in their actual spiritual encounter with God. So he would ask, you know, when he was um, fellowshipping with a group of Methodists that he thought really were um, uh, rightly aligned spiritually, he'd ask, does anyone have distinct experiences of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And he kind of collected those experiences in a notebook. Yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of an unusual approach to, you want to talk radically practical Trinitarianism. This is a kind of experiential Trinitarianism. Well, if we're going to experience God, I suppose the Trinitarian God's the one that's there to experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I really wanted to thank you for uh, for coming on the show, Dr. Sanders. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, for our, our listeners, I, I recommend the book. Um, I, I got it on Kindle, but I imagine it, it it's good on paper too <laughs> well um, that wraps up this conversation uh, again thank you for coming on the show Dr. Sanders um, yeah thanks for interviewing me and uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed this a lot and I'm sure our listeners will too alright thanks a lot David thank you thank you